Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how the heck are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm a little bit psycho tonight, Mike. Oh, <laughs> are you? Yeah, how are you? I'm uh, I'm suffering from a little vertigo, actually, but I, I, think, uh, I think I'll be okay. Okay, yeah, we'll muddle through. I think we'll get there. That sounds good. Well, if you haven't guessed, tonight we are doing our first Alfred Hitchcock film, which we're very excited about. Phil, why don't you tell people about what we're going to be talking about in this episode? Yes, we will be talking... We will be giving after the endings to the 1993 Arnold Schwarzenegger film, Last Action Hero, which I think is our first Arnie movie. But first, we will be talking about Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 film, The Birds, and also giving our top 10 films of 1933. And as usual, we have a brand new Mighty Morphin mini-feature. Yeah, I don't know what we're going to do exactly when we run out of ideas for new Mighty Morphing mini features. But for now, we haven't had that problem yet, so we're going to just keep on going with them. Yeah, we'll just change the names of them and uh, get different costumes like the Power Rangers. That's right. And we'll just recycle <laughs> the ideas. But we'll it. call them something different. <laughs> yeah. We'll call them the Crazy Corporate Climax, some, whatever that is. The Crazy Corporate Classic Casting Cartel of Crazy Climaxes <laughs> is just one of the many we've already had. Right, right, right. So maybe we'll, we'll see that again someday, but uh, not, not just yet. <laughs> Probably still have some new ideas. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, so it's our first it's our first Alfred Hitchcock film and our first Arnold Schwarzenegger film, so kind of an exciting episode for us. Yeah, it's an episode of firsts. It is indeed. Well, why don't we jump into things then, Phil? No need to dally any further. Why don't you take us through The Birds? Okay, as you say, enough dilly and dallying. We have got Hitchcock's 1963 film, which had the screen debut of Tippi Hedren and also starred Rod Taylor, Jessica Tandy, and was based on the 1952 story by Daphne du Maurier. Okay, we have... Oh, it also stars Veronica, a very young Veronica Cartwright. I think she was 12 or 13 at the time. And you'll know Veronica from Alien. Yeah, she actually went on to do a lot of great genre mm. stuff, too. She guest starred in The X-Files a bunch of times. And, yes, very uh, good. You know, I think she was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yeah, she's the one at the end, yeah, isn't she? She's so, Donald Sutherland, yeah. Yeah, so she's, she's definitely kind of a, a great character actress, if you will. Yes, certainly is. Uh, so we have Melanie Daniels, who's played by Tippi Hedren. And it's ironic as the name Melanie is also the name of her daughter, Melanie Griffith. Uh, but in the film, Melanie meets Mitch Brenner, who's played by the always brilliant Rod Taylor, meets her in a pet shop in San Francisco. He's after a pair of lovebirds for his sister's 11th birthday, but the shop has none. After a bit of banter where he pretends that Melanie's a shop assistant, they go their separate ways, but Melanie's intrigued. And she gets hold of some lovebirds, finds out Mitch's address, which is in Bodega Bay, and she journeys down there, gets in a boat with the birds in a cage, gets uh, to the house and leaves the birds with a note saying happy birthday to his sister. Meanwhile, Mitch has been sitting in a boat watching this take place and having a little bit of a laugh. And it's all, it's a, it all starts off, it's a bit like a romantic comedy to begin with. Uh, but, as she, but as she sails back to the mainland, Melanie is attacked by a seagull. Uh, Mitch comes over to help her and invites her to dinner. There she meets his mum, Lydia, played by Jessica Tandy, and his sister, Kathy, played by Veronica Cartwright. She later meets Mitch's ex, uh, Annie, played by Su Suzanne Plachette, who's uh, the local school teacher. Uh, Melanie ends up spending the night at Annie's, where they are disturbed by a gull flying into the front door, and promptly dies. Uh, John Cathy's party the next day, the guests were attacked by more seagulls, so it's all getting a little bit strange, and the next evening, sparrows fly down the chimney of Lydia Brenner's home and attack. They manage to fend them off, and they're okay, but the next day Liddy goes to a neighbor's house only to find he's been killed and his eyes pecked out by the birds. Obviously, there's a trend, there's something going on with the birds, as you may have picked up. Mm. Uh, Liddy is worried about Kathy, who is at school. So Melanie drives to the school and waits for Kathy. And it's one of my favorite scenes. While she's waiting, you see the, uh, the climbing frame in the playground, and you see as it, as it uh, builds and builds, more and more crows land on there it's great as it's a hitchcock film attention builds and builds until we have a murder of crows sitting there and as the kids come out to the school the crows attack 
ends up with Melanie meeting Mitch in a restaurant in town where people share the theories on the bird attacks. And as they're talking, more birds attack people outside and people start dying, things blow up. It's all getting a bit mad. Mitch and Melanie end up getting to Annie's house only to find she's been killed. They have to get to safety, so head up back to Lydia's house where they barricade the doors and windows and they are attacked by wave after wave of birds throughout the day and into the evening. Uh, during the night, Melanie investigates a sound and it turns out the birds have got into a bedroom upstairs and she's attacked. Mitch ends up saving her, but she's almost catatonic and badly injured and he realises they need to get her to a hospital. It's now dawn and they look outside the window where thousands of birds sit outside. Mitch goes outside and the birds don't really move, but he gets to the car, gets it all sorted, gets uh, Melanie and everybody else into the car and they drive slowly away as the radio reports that bird attacks are spreading across the country. And that's the birds. There you go. A great ending because it's really mm. so so open-ended. You know, there's no real concrete ending. There's no explanation for why the birds are going mad. It's just sort of this, you know, animals gone wild kind of film. And, uh, you know, while it may not be one of Hitchcock's best films, it obviously is something he was trying something a little new with. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, there is that great sequence, the bird attacks uh, when they're in the restaurant. And there's that sort of bird's eye view shot, you know, that, that great yeah. technical shot that uh, – you know, it's just very memorable. So, it, you know, it's a fun film. I, I enjoy it. It's not necessarily my favorite Hitchcock, but... It was always one I, was, I remember reading about as a kid and never got to see it. Never got to see it for a long time, but then when I eventually did, I, I thought it was great. It's just, it's the it's the build-up, and as I mentioned, it's it's like the juxtaposition. You've got the romantic comedy beginning. Right. You know, it's sort of, and then it goes against your expectations where it all, the birds start attacking and it all goes, it goes very strange and gets very dark. Right. You know, what yeah. dawned on me when you were doing your synopsis, though, is I think that Rod Taylor, or Mitch, I should say, his character Mitch, I think he hates his mother secretly. Yes, yeah. Here, here's yeah. why I say that, though, because he was buying a pair of lovebirds for his 11-year-old sister. Now, she doesn't live with him. She lives with the mom. And birds yeah. are really annoying pets because they make noise all the time. So I think he was buying them for his sister as a gift, but really he was buying them for her to annoy his mom because he doesn't like her. Well, you're probably right there because I mean, <laughs> Hitchcock did Psycho as well. And that's all the mother thing as well. Exactly. So it's probably it's probably all about, you know, right? Like if somebody bought your kid a pair of birds, yeah. wouldn't, you, wouldn't you be like, "Are you kidding me right now?" Yeah, you'd be going, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> right, yeah, right, exactly. So it's it's probably all about the birds attacking. It's probably all a commentary on, <laughs> right? You know, parental children relationships and things <laughs> exactly. like that. Exactly. But I like to th I like to think of it as birds going crazy and attacking people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably, yeah. you know, we'll ignore the deeper subtext and we'll yeah. just look at it on a surface level. So Because as as I often think, the person who writes or comes up with these ideas, you know, when they get analyzed, people say, well, it actually means this and that. But half the time, I'm sure the, the writer and the director's going, well, no, <laughs> right. it's exactly what it is. Right. Yeah. It's just about birds attacking people. Yeah, yeah. I'm perfectly yeah. okay with that. Yeah, I'm probably wrong. And if you if you do disagree, feel free to comment on it and send us emails explaining why we're wrong and what it actually means. Yes, we love getting emails telling us that we're wrong about things. Mm. I mean, I know my 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 ego personally is a big <laughs> fan of that, so <laughs> Yeah. You're wrong. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks, Phil. Deal with it. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so that's that's we've had the what happens in the birds. We know the ending, and as you say it's a great ending. So what have you got for the day after? All right, well, Mitch, Melanie, Lydia, and Kathy continue their agonizingly slow drive off the Brenner homestead. The further out from the house they get, the less congested the resting birds are. After a few miles, the birds seem to dissipate completely. Mitch sticks to the back roads until he gets to the highway, which appears to be unaffected by the chaos. He gets on the highway and drives to the hospital in San Francisco. Melanie gets treated for shock, and the doctors reassure Mitch that she'll be okay in a day or two. Mitch puts Lydia and Kathy up in a nearby motel and then returns to the hospital to watch over Melanie. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Nothing too exciting yet, but like Ooh. Hitchcock, I like to yeah. build the suspense. Yes, because it's not not much happened, but um, yeah, yeah there's, suspense is building. That's right. <laughs> all right, how, okay. about your, uh, how about your day after, Phil? Okay, the birds all explode and take out Bodega Bay. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, I should have thought of that before that'd when be, I was writing it. That'd be pretty okay. cool. Okay, the and they spend the next uh, three years cleaning up the yeah. mess. Why didn't oh. I know, right? All our best ideas. You know what it is, Phil? We're winging yeah. it. Oh, <laughs> and good things are happening. Oh, when we dear me! I can't think of any more bad puns at the minute. Just getting by on a wing and a prayer. Oh. <laughs>
It's a feather in your cap with that one. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, you know, I had a seed of an idea, and it, uh, you know, it's just, it's just growing. You know, it's just, it's just taking flight. Uh, I've just got to go get some more water in this beaker. No, that's no. I've killed that one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> nice job, Phil. We had a good thing going, yeah. and you ruined it. Uh, I'll right. try and claw it back. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. Well, why don't you, uh, okay. why don't you go ahead and jump into your day after before this gets any it's more? It's no painful. longer after the ending. It's puntastic. <laughs> that's puns. right. That's right. Okay. So day after, we got Mitch drives Melanie, his mum and sister, to San Francisco. Wherever they look, there is, they see birds in the trees and in the sky. They hear more reports of bird attacks, and from what they can tell, they seem to be spreading further and further afield. However, they manage to make it to San Francisco and the hospital with no more attacks. There they find many more people waiting to be treated who have had similar experiences with, the, with birds and where they've been living, and nobody seems to know what's causing it. Looking out of the window while they wait for Melanie to be treated... Mitch watches as a huge flock of birds of all types fill the sky. The radio, still playing, begins to, man- begins to mention attacks taking place in other countries. But they also report that a previously undiscovered comet is due to pass by Earth over the next few weeks. Hmm, interesting. That's, uh, that's my day after. Very interesting, Phil. As always, I can't wait to see where you're going with this. Well, you can tell me where you're going next, though, with your immediate aftermath. All right. Well, a couple of days later, Melanie is fully recovered. She gets discharged from the hospital and returns to the motel with Mitch. Lydia and Kathy have been watching the news, and the bird attacks are spreading. So far, the birds have been avoiding the major cities, but the smaller towns are falling one by one. Mitch tries to drive back to Bodega Bay to see if it's salvageable, but he can't even make it into town before his car is attacked by birds. He turns back to San Francisco in defeat. He picks up Melanie and the girls, and they decide to head into the mountains. Mitch has a friend who has a cabin in the woods. Melanie is worried about heading into the forest, which is, of course, birds' natural habitat, but, which is, of course, birds' natural habitats, because she thinks there'll be more birds. But Mitch thinks that they're going to be safe because the birds are all attacking small towns, and they've left the woods. Lydia, however, refuses to go because she thinks they'll be safer in the big city. So she goes to stay with her sister at her apartment downtown. Mitch, Melanie, and Kathy head for the safety of the mountains. Will it really be safe? We'll find out shortly. (laughs) The suspense is building. I think I put all the good stuff in my long term, so we'll see how we'll see how that pans out, you know. So how about you, Phil? Take us into your immediate aftermath. Okay, it's uh, similar to yours. A few days have passed. Melanie's been treated and is doing okay, and they've all been staying at her apartment in the city. They keep following the news, and the bird attacks keep happening, yet they always lie dormant for a few hours just after dawn. The National Guard and other military forces have been using flamethrowers and poisons to fight them, but it's a losing battle. A virus is quickly created by scientists aimed to kill avian creatures. Obviously, it has to be rushed through, so safety tests are minimal. It's quickly finished and deployed a week or two later in the U.S. Samples are also flown to other countries to help combat the problem there, as it is spreading around the globe. Over the next few days, birds begin dying while the comet crosses the sky. Meanwhile, a scientist discovers that the comet is emitting a previously unknown type of radiation. And that's the end of my immediate aftermath. Mm. I like how you keep leaving us on cliffhangers with this comet, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time for you you to bring us home with yours. All right. What's happening with your long term? All right. So as Mitch and Melanie and Kathy are driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, a massive swarm of birds, including hundreds of birds of prey, attack the commuters on the bridge. They swarm the cars, smashing into their windshields and causing drivers to careen wildly out of control. Mitch gets the car off the bridge in the nick of time, as the bird's concentrated efforts have caused enough catastrophic damage to the bridge to cause it to collapse. With the sound of rending metal screaming in the air, the bridge collapses and smashes into the water, taking hundreds of human souls with it. As it sinks deep into the bay, Mitch and Melanie look on, stunned. The birds turn on the onlookers, and they dive back into the car and peel out. They make it to the cabin in the mountains and find that all the birds have gone. The forest is silent. They collapse in the cabin, and the three of them fall asleep, exhausted. In the morning, Mitch goes out to gather some firewood. When he opens the door to the cabin, he looks out and sees that the entire cabin is surrounded. Deer, bobcats, raccoons, squirrels, every forest animal you can imagine has created an impassable barrier around the cabin. The madness is spreading. Ooh. And there you good. go. Thank you. Oh, what an ending. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. An animal's right. gone wild. It certainly could be a good fox special or, or an ending. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So how about you, Phil? Let's, uh, let's see what you got. Okay. Tell us about this comet. Okay. Yeah, the bird virus and the radiation from the comet produce an effect that had, until now, thought to exist only in science fiction. The birds which have been killed by the virus have returned to life in an undead state. 
The attacks worsen and victims have their flesh stripped from them. The birds are now almost unstoppable. Even worse, it appears that they can still reproduce, so the skies are soon full of undead birds. Well, just wiping away people. Some might call them zombirds. Zombirds, indeed. <laughs> there's also a huge increase in flies and other insects as the birds are no longer eating them, and obviously there's more dead flesh from all the victims of the birds. Mankind fights back, but it is a losing battle. Birds are everywhere, and over the years, the human population shrinks and dwindles as the end draws ever closer. Ooh, nice. I like it. Thank you. That's like true horror movie ending. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. Got to go all out. Yeah, man. That's super cool. Yeah. Very fun. All right. So there you go. So that's how we like to see the uh, after the ending of The Birds. Both, I think, kind of dreary endings, but mm. that's what you get when you deal with, you know, kind of horror films. I think, the, I think The Birds qualifies as a horror film. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it does. So, uh, so Phil, do you have any? Uh, do you have any flighty trivia for us? As well as being based on the the short story by Daphne du Maurier, there was also a new story that Hitchcock saw in uh, 1961. A town in California, uh, they woke to find sooty shearwaters slamming into the rooftops and dying in the streets. And it was thought the birds went a bit mad because of the result of shellfish poisoning. So Hitchcock liked that, and uh, it sort of inspired him as well. There was no traditional film score with, uh, with the birds, so they used sound effects and electronic music throughout there, uh, throughout the film. The schoolhouse of features in the film was said to be haunted, and Tippy Hedren said while they were there, the building was immensely populated, but there was nobody there. It had that kind of feeling. Hmm. It contains 370 effect shots, and the final shot with all the birds around the house is a composite of 32 separate, separately filmed elements. Wow, that's a good-looking shot, though, because it, doesn't, it really doesn't look like it. Not at all. It's a fantastic shot. Yeah. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's cameo is about two minutes in. He's walking out of the pet shop that Tippy Hedren's walking in, and he's got a couple of dogs on leads. Uh, additional trivia for you there, Phil. Those are his own two dogs. Oh, okay. See Excellent. That? that is a good little bit of trivia. Yeah. The film also stars Doodles Weaver. He plays the fisherman who helps with the rental boat. He is actually the uncle of Sigourney Weaver, and as we already mentioned, Veronica Cartwright starred in Alien with Sigourney Weaver. Very cool. There you go. And... On a complete segue that you just reminded me of when you said Doodles Weaver, though, yeah. check this out. This it, it ties in only because this is a movie from the 60s, and I'm about to tie it to a movie from the 50s. But okay. I was watching Zootopia with my kids the other day. Yeah. Fantastic movie, of course. And in the credits, there's somebody on the production side of things whose name was Nathan Detroit Warner. You're joking. I kid you not. And it wasn't even like in quotes. It was like his full name, Nathan Detroit Warner. He's like one of the first, probably the first dozen credits or so in the film. Maybe like the first 20 or so. But he's right. Okay. He's one of like the big credits, not even like, you know, the scrolling credits. It's like one of the yeah. ones that shows up on the, the video screens in the end scene when everyone's dancing and stuff. Yeah. Nathan Detroit Warner. So for anybody who hasn't listened to all of our past episodes, Nathan Detroit, of course, is one of the main characters of Guys and Dolls, which we did an after the ending for a few episodes ago. And in that episode, I commented on how I like that name so much. I've named characters after it. Well, clearly somebody out there liked it so much they named their kid after Nathan Detroit because I don't think that's an accident yeah it's just looking on IMDB yeah he's done he's the visual effects animation department there you and go he worked, worked on an awful yeah loads of films right Nathan Detroit Warner how funny is that oh excellent so anyway just had to mention <laughs> that oh I like that because I thought that was pretty funny so Nathan uh, Nathan Detroit Warner if you're listening a big shout out from us here at, uh, at After the Ending we're, we're big fans of you and your name yes we are indeed so if you want to get in touch sing a song do a dance yeah you can do some yeah Exactly, yeah. or or just do some visual effects for us. We'd we'd be okay yeah. with that. Vis visual effects of a podcast that would be, <laughs> yeah, be quite, quite interesting. Yeah, we'd yeah, like, they have the two of us going. Wow, that's amazing! <laughs> I know you guys can't see these effects, but trust oh. me, they would blow your mind we, if you could. It is literally just the most incredible thing <laughs> we've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Wish you could well, see it. Yeah, we're just going to pause. Just listen to it. Right. <laughs> there we go. So anyway, all right, well, great. So that's The Birds. Uh, if you would like to share your after the ending with us about The Birds, we will tell you how you can get in touch with us in just a little bit. But for now, why don't we move on to The Last Action Hero, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know, it doesn't star Arnold Schwarzenegger, it stars Jack Slater. Well, no, it actually stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Jack Slater. Yes, very true. If you recall, in the film, so. And it, along with a whole heap of other people. Yes, a, a great cast, including Anthony Quinn, uh, Charles Dance, who's utterly fantastic, Bridget Wilson who later became Bridget Sampras Wilson, married to Pete Sampras, the tennis player, oh, and yeah, yeah. several other good people as well. Yeah. F. Murray Abraham had a That's right. Role in Thank you. Forgot it. about yeah. him, but he's in there. Yeah, and loads of cameos. Yes, yes, indeed. Good stuff. Okay, so the last action hero. As the film opens, we meet Danny Madigan, a young teenager living in New York City. 
He lives a pretty rough life and spends a lot of time with his friend Nick, an older man who runs the aging Pandora Theater. Movie theater, I should say. When Nick invites Danny to watch the new Arnold Schwarzenegger film, the Jack Slater action movie series, before it's released, Danny is very excited. When he enters the theater for the premiere, Nick rips a ticket in half that he says was given to him by no less than Harry Houdini. He gives Danny the other half as a souvenir. During the movie, Danny is magically transported into the film and ends up in Jack Slater's car. After a car chase, Danny tries to convince Jack that they're in a movie. In typical movie fashion, however, the angry police chief assigns Danny to Jack as his new partner. While Danny and Jack visit the home of a mobster that killed Jack's favorite second cousin, his assassin, Mr. Benedict, played by Charles Dance, overhears Danny talking about the ticket and follows them. Jack takes Danny to his ex-wife's house where they meet Jack's teenage daughter, Whitney, played by Bridget Sampras Wilson in her first film role, I believe. After some major action sequences and a scene that sees Mr. Benedict kill his mobster boss, Benedict gets the ticket and escapes into the real world. Danny and Jack follow, and Jack is quickly disillusioned by the real world. Mr. Benedict attempts to kill Jack Slater by killing the real Arnold Schwarzenegger in the real world, but Danny and Jack save him. They corner Benedict on the roof of the movie theater, but he's brought help with him in the form of the Ripper, played by Tom Noonan, who was the movie villain who killed Jack Slater's son in the movies. They kill Benedict and the Ripper, but Jack is mortally wounded. They rush back to the theater to try and get Jack back into the movie world so he can heal, but they meet up with Death from the Seventh Seal, played by Ian McKellen, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, very good he is. Who's been pulled out of the film by the magic ticket. Death, however, says he was just there as a curiosity because Jack isn't on his list since he's a fictional character. Danny finds the other half of the ticket and returns Jack Slater to his movie world where he heals instantly and then drives off into the sunset. And that's the last action hero. Yeah, and it's it's this it's such so many good ideas in the film. Yeah. It it should have been it should have been bigger, but as uh I think I think there was lots of trouble with the production from what I can gather as well. And it's I think they were filming up to the week before it was due out. Right. So I don't think they got a chance to to, to do the final, you know, you know, what what needed to be done on it, I think. I enjoy it. But it's it's it was not as good as it should have been. Fair enough. I, I like the film quite a bit, but it does have its problems. For one thing, it's too long. At two hours and ten minutes, it yeah, definitely yeah. should have been shorter. And you know, the best parts of the movie are like when when Danny's trying to convince Jack that he's, that he's in a movie, and there are cameos. There's a great uh, cardboard cutout in a video store of uh, Sylvester Stallone as Terminator yeah, Two. Yeah. You know, yeah. some really great Hollywood in jokes. You know, there's an animated cat police partner. You know, police detective that he's trying to convince Jack that that shouldn't be real. And he's like, what? He's a great cop. You know, it's a lot of really funny stuff, but then, then the movie I think starts to drag on, you know, too long. But I, I, yeah. I still enjoy it. I think it's fun. I, I do think it's got a lot of, you know, funny moments, and uh, you know, it's one of those things I think is worth popping in and checking your brain at the door and, and just having a good time with. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. Uh, I think it's it's ripe for a remake. To be honest, sure, I can see that because it's if you get the right studio doing it, have the rights to all the films, you could you could really go all out, and you could. Do something really special with it. Yeah, I agree. I think they could have some yeah. fun with that if they could really yeah. get into other movie worlds, you know? Yeah. But anyway, so that's the film. Phil, why don't you tell us about your day after? So after all the adventures that they've gone through, Danny, Nick, and Jack Slater realize that the ticket stub is extremely dangerous, so they decide to keep it hidden. Danny also tries to figure out how it could work, but he has no idea where to start. Slater, his mind blown by what he's experienced, begins to appreciate life a lot more. He also decides to go see a counsellor, as once he's back in his own movie world, he got really confused when he went to the cinema in that world. As he now knows he's in a film, he wondered if the films in his world also work the same way, and the people he's watching on screen also had their own lives. So he got a bit confused. And that's uh, that's the end of my next day. All right, very good. What have you got for your next day? All right, so in the real world, Jack Slater 4 is a huge hit due to the media coverage over the attempt on Arnold Schwarzenegger's life. The movie studio rushes out three more sequels filmed back-to-back, but by the time the third one is released a few years later, the franchise has petered out. When the movie studio announces after the opening weekend of Jack Slater 7 that the franchise has been canceled, Danny realizes that this means that Jack Slater has effectively died. He mourns the loss of his friend and doesn't want to let him go. So he decides to try and save him, and he goes on a mission to try and find more tickets from Harry Houdini. Okay, very good. Okay, great. So let's let's see where it goes. Take us to your immediate aftermath. Okay, Danny ended up writing down his adventures he had in a diary and kept that safe. Yeah, the ticket stub was safe, although Danny did use it every few months to pop over and see how Jack was doing. They kept their meetings brief while Nick stayed in the cinema to keep watch. 
Danny decided to try writing screenplays, but only comedies and films when no one was hurt, as he realised being a screenwriter, he had a big responsibility. So that's uh, my immediate aftermath. Oh, I like that, though. I like that he, he writes films where, you know, happy things happen to people. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So what about your immediate aftermath? Well, it's taken a few months, but Danny finally tracked down one of Houdini's tickets. Jack Slater 7 is completely gone from theaters, but Danny manages to find a second-run theater that's still running it for a dollar a show. He makes it to the theater for the last showing of the last night of the film's run. As the trailers are playing, however, a two-bit hood shows up to rob the place. When Danny tries to intervene, he gets shot, and he's forced to rip the ticket in half before the movie starts to escape into the movie world and save himself. He wakes up completely healed, but finds that he's now in a romantic comedy called Take the Honey and Run, (laughs) starring Cameron Diaz, Amy Adams, Melissa McCarthy, Woody Harrelson, James McAvoy, and Joel McHale. And that's where we'll leave things for now. Okay. How about your long-term? Okay. So, long-term. Nick had passed away years before, and the cinema where the adventures took place was knocked down. Danny, now an adult, is married and has one son named Carl. He's a successful screenwriter, although he hardly ever watches films anymore. He finds it all a bit troubling. Wait, did you say his son's name was Carl? Yeah. You like to name characters Carl, don't you? Do I? Be- yeah, because in The Crow, the Sarah's boyfriend was named Carl also. Oh, do I didn't. Yeah. I didn't recall that. You know what I know? Because every time you name a character Carl, I just assume you're going to do a Walking Dead tie-in. Oh, okay. I keep yeah. waiting for you to go, Carl! That's not even a reason. I don't know. Yeah, I just because <laughs> I wrote down son and I went back said, a bit later on. I went, I need don't, a name for Listen, son. don't let Hannah hear this because she's going to think that you secretly wanted a boy that you were going to name Carl. <laughs> <laughs> that's weird. Yeah, I forgot yeah. I called the boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. All right. Wow. I'm sorry to interrupt you. You can pick up. No, that's, 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 that's a good, good one to interrupt. I'll have to call all, all the other <laughs> Start people. Start calling all, your, all the Carl. kids, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. He'd last seen Jack Slater years before to tell him he would no longer be visiting as it was all too dangerous. Slater totally agreed with him especially when they found that the ticket also worked with films on TV screens. Mm. Danny's son, Carl, now a teenager, one day stumbled upon his father's diary and read with amazement about the ticket. At first he thought it was just a joke or another one of his dad's story ideas, but he decided to look for it anyway all the same, and eventually he found it. So, a teenage boy with a ticket that meant he could enter any film, he ended up watching an awful lot of porn. (laughs) (laughs) He was always careful, though, in all senses of the word. (laughs) However, one fateful night, Carl, now 21, went round to a friend's house for a party. Once there, he realised that the ticket stub was still in his pocket after the last time he'd watched it. He was going to head home to return it and put it safe, but the beer was now flowing and he got, got talking to his friends and the party moved on. Later that night, only a few people were still at the party and Carl fell asleep. While he slept, one of his friends suggested they watch a movie. They pressed play and the ticket in Carl's pocket began to glow. Carl awoke to his friend's screams of shock. He looked around to see them all looking out the window. What's the matter, he asked. The dog. It just jumped out the screen and ran off. It was crazy, one of his friends said. Remembering the ticket was in his pocket, Carl turned towards the TV with a feeling of dread. John Carpenter's The Thing was paused. (laughs) Blair's calculations in the film would soon become true. Wow. Very nice. Very nice. I like that a lot. Uh, Thank you very much. Well, and I guess we should say for for those people who haven't seen The Thing that... Should we, I guess we should tell them, right, what what the significance yeah. of that is. The dog is carrying the alien organism that spreads at, at a touch. So having this dog, uh, you know, loose in mainstream America would be very, very, very bad. Yeah, because sure. that's, what, that's what always got me about the film. It's a, it's lots of fun, but if you go in the wrong film yeah. and bring something out of the wrong film, yeah, you're, you're screwed. Wow. <laughs> very cool. I like that. I like that quite a bit, Phil. Thank very you very nice. much. Uh, what have you got for your long term? All right. Well, Danny finds himself taken in by Amy Adams, a young widower who assumes he's just a wayward youth and wants to help him. He tries to convince her that they're in a movie, but once again finds it impossible. However, when Danny tells her that her sisters, Cameron Diaz and Melissa McCarthy, are being taken by their new boyfriends who are actually con artists, and he helps save them from having all their money stolen, she finally believes him. She enlists her best friend, who's secretly in love with her, James McAvoy, who also happens to be a scientist, to devise a way to send Danny into Jack's world using the ticket stub. When a Jack Slater movie plays on TV inside of the film, Danny jumps back into Jack's world. (laughs) Okay, hold on. So he's in one film and he's jumped into another film within the film. Okay, I'm with you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He pulls Jack back into the rom-com world. While there, Jack and Cameron Diaz fall in love, and Jack decides to stay in the rom-com world because everything there comes extremely easy to him. Danny helps Amy Adams realize that she's actually in love with James McAvoy, too, and Melissa McCarthy ends up marrying Woody Harrelson while he's in prison. 
Danny is satisfied that Jack is now happy, and he uses the remaining power of the ticket to return to the real world. He's inspired by his adventures and begins to wonder what happens to movie characters when the credits stop rolling. So he starts a film podcast called After the Ending, where his ongoing adventures will help <laughs> beloved characters live on after their films end. Uh, there you I go. Thought, I thought we were never going to talk about that. <laughs> we had some great times in those films. Yeah, yes, we did. Yeah. Great so, times. There you go. That's about as meta as I can possibly I like get. it. No, I like that tied into us. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, a little something Very different. Good. I thought it would be fun. Yeah. Also, I've just realized that when you were saying that he went in the film within the film, this is another film that Christopher Nolan ripped off for Inception. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that the yeah. last action hero was uh, really a big influence well, on Inception. That's what it was, you know. It's the whole different levels. It's just the last action. Hero. Right. It's just that you're right. Inception is really just the last it's action just, hero with a slightly different twist. You're right. Beat for beat, it's exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You're right, Phil. Yep. Oh, I might have to write about that. Oh, yeah. I think that's an article <laughs> definitely waiting yeah. to happen. <laughs> anyway, yeah. all right. I can, I can imagine the hate. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure. I, I, don't, you know, I, don't, I don't know why you'd say that, actually. I don't think anybody would have a problem with you accusing Christopher Nolan, one of the most respected filmmakers of our day, ripping <laughs> off an Arnold Schwarzenegger film that most people don't like. Why would anybody have a problem with that? No, I think I, I, think I can tie all Christopher Nolan's films Bang. into Arnold Schwarzenegger films. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I would, <laughs> I would kill to see that article. That would be, that would be yeah. fantastic. Yeah, we should that. make that a mini feature, actually, where we can, yeah. where we we compare <laughs> Nolan films to Schwarzenegger films. Oh, we should definitely do that, <laughs> do that next week. <laughs> we'll call it. We'll just call it something simple like Interstellar, but we'll pronounce it like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It'll be like this is our new Interstellar. Yeah, Interstellar. <laughs> you know, I can't do Schwarzenegger. I'll let you do it. <laughs> anyway, all right. So um, now that we've fully gone off, off the rails, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of it now. Okay, mind my, my back in the game. Okay. Uh, why don't you uh, share with us some, some trivia about The Last Action Hero? Memento is just based on Predator. <laughs> you know, I've, I've always thought that, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, okay, some trivia for The Last Action Hero. Uh, Charles Dance played Benedict. It was a role originally turned down by Alan Rickman. Uh, but I think Timothy Dalton was also considered for it at one point. But apparently it was originally written for William Atherton who was uh, Walter Peck in Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. And I think all of them would have been, would have brought different things to the character, but all would have been good. Yeah, actually, I can yeah. see any one of those people doing yeah. that role, to be honest. But Charles Dance is terrific in, in this yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I love and, all and those fake eyes. Yeah, yeah, those are cool. And for those of you who don't recognize the name, because he's kind of a bit of a character actor, you probably know him best as Tywin Lannister on uh, Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, and Spielberg was offered the film to direct, but he decided not to and went off to do a little film called Schindler's List. Oh, you know, that seems to come up a lot in this show, movies that Spielberg yeah. turned down that he then goes on to make incredible or blockbuster hits with. Yeah. So. so if it wasn't for Last Action Hero, there'd be no Schindler's List. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we're giving this movie way too much credit, yeah. Phil. No way you could do this now. It's actually the, the middle of all great films. <laughs> it's like the Kevin Bacon of movies, Six, <laughs> yeah, six Degrees it, yeah. of the Last Action Hero. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to write that down. Okay. Yeah, that's a good. Six, that's another mini feature for the future, Six, six Degrees, degrees of, the last of the Last Action Hero. Because there's so many people in it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. And also, so getting back to that, and also Robert Zemeckis was either offered it or was considering it. It was Art Carney's last film, and his very last lines on film were, I'm out of here. Oh, that's fitting. And also, the film makes several references to the governor of Los Angeles, which was, uh, this was all took place before Arnie became the governor of California. Hmm. California, so. That's very prescient. Yes, it certainly is. That's pretty much everything. Yeah, that's the last action hero. Alrighty, great. So there you go. Those are our endings for The Last Action Hero and The Birds. If you would like to share your thoughts on our endings, and we hope that you will, please drop us a line. We'll let you know how to do that in a little bit. Meanwhile, why don't we move on to our Mighty Morphing mini feature. Phil, I'll let you explain this one since this was uh, your idea. Okay, this one is called Tyler Durden is My Wingman. I like it. Thank you very much. And Alt then, alternate title, Tyler Durden Live Here Anymore. <laughs> Tyler Durden Live Here Anymore. I just wanted That's to say it. that out loud. So um, for those of you who know Tyler Durden is in fight club and when you find out when you find out who Tyler Durden actually is your mind goes so it's all about what films especially near the end of the film what film endings blew your mind or blew our minds Yes, and uh, we're going to just put a little uh, moratorium on. We're not going to discuss The Sixth Sense, The Crying Game, or The Usual Suspects because those are just a little bit too obvious, I think. And also Fight Club. And, and Fight Club because obviously it's in the name of the, the feature. So, 
But I don't know that my choices are all that original anyway, but we'll see what we got. Okay, we asked the, asked the question on the Facebook page, and a couple of people uh, gave some of theirs. Frank Gower, he said The Mist, the adaptation of the Stephen King short story, and that is... That is a hell of an ending. It really is. And, and I, I love that movie. And for a very long time, I hated the ending of it. Uh, but yeah. I have come around in recent years to, to a sort of begrudging respect, if you will. Uh, mm. But if you haven't seen The Mist, I do highly recommend it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's also, it's, uh, I believe it's getting turned into a TV series. Ooh, that's exciting. So it'll be interesting to see where they go with that. Yeah, for sure. And the other, after the ending, listener, Paul Tabern, he said, Enemy, the Jake Gyllenhaal film which is a very bizarre ending. Yeah, it blew my mind because it was really more like, what the heck just happened there? It's such a bizarre ending uh, to a weird movie that uh, I do yeah. agree as far as a mind-blowing ending, but I'm going to say in this case for me, not in a positive way. But thank you yeah. for sending in your, your choices, guys. We do appreciate it. Yes, and if anybody else has got uh, some films which blew the mind, please get in touch and let us know. Yeah, absolutely. So, Phil, what's uh, what's one of your films that blew your mind? One of the endings that blew your mind? Uh, well, one of them was The Machinist. Ah, interesting. The, uh, the Christian Bale film where he lost a t- huge amount of weight, and it all first time you see it, you're going, "Is this CG? What the hell?" Because right. he is it is shockingly thin. Right. Uh, but the ending of that, when you realise why he has has lost all the weight, he can't sleep and everything, and it's all to do with the he befriends a woman and a son. And then when you finally find out what happens, it's just, it's heartbreaking, but also just, it just shatters you, just blew my mind okay. in a sad way. Right, right, sure. Yeah, so what about uh, your, what's, what film blew your mind? All right, well, the, the one of the first ones I thought of was Primal Fear, starring Richard Gere and Edward Norton, and it was oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. one of Ed Norton's first starring roles, if not his first, I believe. And, um, you know, basically it's uh, Richard Gere plays a lawyer who's defending uh, Edward Norton, who is accused of a crime, a uh, murder, and... Um, Boy, howdy, there's an end scene that is just uh, really, really amazing. If you haven't seen Primal Fear, you should definitely check it out. It's a terrific movie, but the the ending really is kind of a – I guess it's sort of a twist ending in a way. And um, yeah. there's there's a performance by Edward Norton that is just utterly fantastic. So I, I think that's a really great a great one that really took me by surprise at the time. Yeah, because you, you basically have to go back and reassess what's, what's going on, don't you? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, and the other one, I was thinking – Trying to think of some of the other ones. I was just going for something a little bit different. I went with Arlington Road. Oh, very good choice. I, yeah. I remember seeing, I saw that in theatres actually. Yeah. Tim Robbins, yeah, and uh, Jeff Bridges, yeah. And he's, uh, it, it builds and it's tense, misunderstandings. And then when you finally, because re- you're watching the ending and you're going, oh, I wonder where this is going to go. And then suddenly you realise, and it's just, it's another one. It's another downer ending, but it just, I didn't see it coming, to be honest. I was trying to think where they were going to go. I knew it wasn't going to be a good ending. But when you finally realise what it was, and the aftermath, uh, yeah. What I like about that ending, too, is it's really gutsy. You know, most mainstream yeah, Hollywood yeah. films would not have gone in that direction. They would have played it a lot more safe. And that is a film that, you know, it it wasn't necessarily the the ending you wanted, but it was sort of the ending that the film needed, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, very good choice. Very good. Thank you very much. And what have you got for your last one? All right, my other film, and this is a, really one of the most obvious choices, but I had to pick it anyway. It is the original Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah, and yeah, classic. The reason the reason I picked it, even though it's an obvious choice, um, and I'm going to go ahead and spoil it because it's you know the movie's 50 years old, and if you haven't seen Planet of the Apes, the original yet, just turn the volume down for the next 30 seconds. But um, you know, at the very end, when Taylor is riding on horseback and he's on the beach and he turns the corner and there's you know the the buried Statue of Liberty and he realizes that he's still on Earth, just in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's obviously it's one of the most iconic moments in, in movie history. But what's interesting is you know I watched that movie for the first time when I was relatively young. I mean, I was probably not even 10 yet. And so my movie going experience up until that point was fairly limited, you know, and you know, it, it's nice because I remember watching that movie for the first time and I, I had no idea what was coming. You know, most yeah, people yeah. nowadays, when they watch people who see Planet of the Apes, even for the first time, they know what's coming because it, it's so famous of a moment. But I didn't know because, you know, it wasn't this yeah, was pre-internet. Yeah. And I remember that the the impact that that had on me when I watched that for the first time and the shock that I was so blown away by it. And that's one of the the earliest, like, really concrete film memories that I have. Um, 
you know, I have other film memories from before that, like the Star Wars films and stuff. But that was such a, such an impactful moment for me that I will I just I will never forget that moment of utter surprise. And, and very few movies have ever been able to have that kind of effect on me. So to me, it was more of a personal choice that even though it was, it's an obvious one, it, it had a really big impact on me. I think a lot of my love of films goes back to moments like that when I was a kid, when I realized that that film could really do something unexpected and really amazing. Well, it's it's just, it's, yeah, as you say, when a film just takes you by surprise and you just, it's part, partly when you're watching it and you're going, well, could it be this? Because I remember when I watched The Mist with some friends and we were watching it and it was nearing the end. There was, I think, one of them, I think it was my friend Derek. He was, he was going, it's, yeah, they're not going to do it. They're not going to go that way. Right, and then they did. <laughs> and then suddenly they did and going, oh, oh, oh God, okay. Yeah. But it's, yeah, when it's, when they do do that thing, and it just takes you totally by surprise or hits you in the gut. It's, it's sometimes it can be hard, but it's it's immensely satisfying. For sure, for sure. Yeah. I, I love a good a good twist, a really well done one that you that, you know that's done yeah. for the for the right reasons. You know, for story reasons, not just to try and shock you. You know, Planet of the Apes was great because it's it's all part of the parable. It's all part of the story about how mankind destroyed itself. You know, so that ending yeah, works yeah. because it's it's earned. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And um, and when you get an ending like that, I just think it's really really powerful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned at the start as well that we're, when we're doing The Sixth Sense. I remember watching The Sixth... Well, I went to see a film. I can't remember what it was. And The Sixth Sense trailer came on mm-hmm. before it. And I remember... Everybody knows the end of The Sixth Sense, right. don't they? So, but if they so don't, I'm, again, turn your volume down yeah. for the next 30 seconds. But I remember watching it. And the way the trailer was cut, I remember going, oh, that looks interesting. Bruce Willis is a ghost. I wonder what the actual story's about. Uh-huh, that's interesting. I can't remember what it, what it was that made me think that. But right. I, then when I watched the film as well, and I was going... oh. Oh, okay. But that's the trailer said. But, right. Yeah. But that was it. That's interesting. See, I don't, I don't remember having that experience. And actually, yeah. I didn't see that movie until it had been out in theaters for about a month because for whatever yeah, reasons, yeah. I just I couldn't get to it. But luckily, you know, this was before the internet ruined everything because I'm sure nowadays I wouldn't be able to get two days without having it spoiled. But oh, So gotcha. I managed to get through about a month without having anybody spoil it for me. So I was still very surprised when the ending came. And, you know, and I do love that movie. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's another thing then for the listeners. If there's any... Films which you blow people's minds, but you you saw the twist coming from the beginning or whatever. Let's let us know as well. Yeah, that could be a fun yeah. uh, feature. I already I yeah, already know yeah. one that I can I can mention. So okay, uh, very cool. Yeah. All right, so there we go. That is Tyler Durden is my wingman. We hope you enjoyed it, and yes. uh, we'll be back next week with an all new mini feature for your delight and enjoyment. Who knows what it'll be? Who knows? We don't even know yet. We'll figure it out <laughs> sometime between now and then. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Phil, why don't you take us back in time to 1933 and tell us what was going on in the world back then? Okay, in 1933, the British Prime Minister was Ramsay MacDonald. American President was Herbert Hoover, but then Franklin D. Roosevelt came in. Uh, we saw the construction began for the Golden Gate Bridge. A gent by the name of Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany, and with hindsight, they probably should have got somebody else. Yeah, not, not the greatest <laughs> yeah. voting decision that no, Germany no, ever no. made. They apparently did some nice paintings, though. <laughs> <laughs> the Lone Ranger debuted on US radio. The London Underground diagram, designed by Harry Beck, was unveiled. The singing telegram was introduced. The Reichstag fire in Germany was a big thing. And in America, the Great Depression began. And it wasn't very good for lots of people. Uh, back to Germany, because it keeps getting better over there. The Gestapo were established. Back here in Scotland, the first alleged modern sighting of the Loch Ness Monster took place. Mm. And this one surprised me. The first drive-in movie theatre opened in the US. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, Gandhi was sentenced to prison in India. Uh, Wiley Post was the first person to fly solar around the world. And Albert Einstein arrived in the US. And also alcohol became legal in America. That's right. That was a good good time for him. The first Krispy Kreme donut store opened and FM radio was patented. Krispy Kreme is a thing of beauty and wonder. I do like a good donut. And also we had some good bears, some good people. John Borman. Kim Novak, Jane Mansfield, Carol Burnett, John Collins, Gene Wilder, Dom DeLuise, Julie Newmar, Roman Polanski, Robert Blake, Tom Skerritt, Nina Simone, Yoko Ono, Bobby Robson, and Willie Nelson. Wow. Very cool. So they're all the same age. I didn't I didn't think some of them were the same age. Yeah, it is Crazy. funny to think about. Some of them don't seem like they're... Like Tom Skerritt doesn't seem yeah. like he's that old, you know? He's the one who jumped out to me. I had no idea he was right. that old. Right. Crazy. All right, very good. So, uh, okay, well, let's uh, let's jump into our top ten films now. Now, here's the thing that's interesting for me. This is once again you're showing me up with your your movie experience, Phil. But it turns out I have sadly only seen four films from 1933. 
Luckily, they're all films that I liked. Otherwise, I, this would really be tough. But uh, <laughs> only four. So I'm going to make a hybrid list. My top, my first six picks are going to be the films I most want to see, similar to what we did with 1917. And then yeah, my yeah. top four films will be the four films that I actually have seen. So fair enough. Because if you haven't seen ten films, you can't. It would be hard. I think my away, t- my yeah. choices, you know, five through ten would be a little little boring since I you know yeah, haven't seen yeah. any. So uh, so that's how we're going to do it tonight. That's yeah, that's fine. It's I'm sure there'll be there'll be other years where you've seen old Tan and I have I've only seen a few. Yeah, doesn't seem to be happening just yet, but yeah, maybe I'll get well, lucky. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well I'll kick things off then. So my number ten is Forty uh, Second Street, starring Dick Powell, Ginger Rogers, and featuring a musical dance numbers by Busby Berkeley. Obviously, I haven't seen the film yet, but it's a very famous one. I would like to see it. I won't say too much more because I don't know which of these films might be on your list, so I'll save the commentary for somebody who may have seen them. But Forty Second Street. A very well-known film that I would like to see. Well, my number 10 is a film called 42nd Street. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> yes, it is. That's yeah. very funny. Uh, it was directed by Lloyd Bacon. It's been made into other... It's been a stage musical. shows what happens backstage and everything, blah, blah, blah. It's just a great example of these kind of films. The big dance numbers. Inventive. I always find them so inventive back then. Oh, yeah, for and sure. So many, peop- so many people involved in the camera work. And the effects they get with people just dancing around is just phenomenal. And the size of some of the sets in these films is just so much work goes into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to think also as well, it was all all the films in 1933 were pre-code. That's right, they were. So the set censorship was very lax or non-existent sort of thing. So you could get away with a, certain things Right. back in 33. Before, uh, but then if, I think it came in the year later, 34. It was, it was coming in anyway, wasn't it, at the end of 33? I th- yeah, I think it was something yeah. like that. Yeah, it was right on the cusp yeah. of it, yep. So some of the films, 33 and before, you'd be shocked and surprised at some of the things that people are wearing and the things that they get away with. Well, that's a perfect segue into my yeah. number nine film, actually, because yes. it is a film called Ecstasy, which is a foreign film which featured a young Hedy Lamarr. And uh, Hedy Lamarr yeah. went on... Hedley! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that little Blazing Saddles reference for those of you who <laughs> might not catch that. But Hedy Lamarr went on to become a big star in Hollywood and actually also something of an inventor uh, later oh, in life. Yeah, she was quite yeah. the character. But what's interesting is that this film Ecstasy uh, featured a nude scene, which was not very common back then, especially in America. American cinema. And so because of that, she almost did not get an American film contract. She, I believe, was hired by Louis B. Mayer, who had a big problem with her doing uh, a nude scene because he was kind of a, a Puritan in that respect. And so she basically had to beg, borrow, and steal to get signed to a contract and then eventually went on to become uh, a big famous movie star. But um, so I'm curious about that film. It's just one of those things where I, I, you know, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie from the 30s that had any kind of really titillating material in it so it's uh, kind of a curiosity for me yeah i've not i've not heard of that one and i, I imagine i'm wondering how many listeners have paused this <laughs> right and to go, not to go look it up. Yeah. Yeah. well you know listen if i had danny's magic ticket uh you know maybe, maybe uh... <laughs> <laughs> anyway I, it's more of a curiosity than anything else you know i'm sure it's very tame compared to uh what we see now and it might even be just her backside i'm not even sure um but you know like i said it, it's interesting like it is a foreign film i don't know that it ever got released over here but Kind of one of those kind of Hollywood trivia nuggets that I find so fascinating. Stuff she invented. What was it? Uh, radio frequency hopping. Yeah, radio guidance systems, yeah. And uh, we wouldn't have – it's used in Wi-Fi and Bluetooth technology. Yeah, it's one of the main components in, in Wi-Fi. So kind of we're doing this podcast in a way because of Hedy Lamar. But, yeah, she's a fascinating character. Yeah, for sure. And apparently got naked in a film. Apparently she did. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, what about your number nine, Phil? Well, it's another – dance and musical film which is a bit of a surprise for me but it's uh, Flying Down to Rio which is the first screen pairing of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers they didn't have the top billing that was to uh, Dolores Del Rio and Gene Raymond you got the composer trying to put in a musical doing all this stuff want to make it uh, good so they decide to get people dancing on the wings of planes and it's it's just another excuse to have these these awesome scenes and Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire just incredible dancers well Fred Astaire is just phenomenal it just always gets me you see him and he's he always he always looked like an old man even when he was young. Right, it's true. And you're always going, well, what's the big deal? And then he starts dancing and moving. And you're going, how on earth is he doing that? <laughs> yeah, it's worth watching just for the big numbers and seeing Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers together for the first time. Sure, definitely. Yeah. 
So All that's right. my number nine. What have you got for number eight? Okay, my number eight is Design for Living, directed by Ernst Lubitsch and starring Frederick March, Gary Cooper, and Miriam Hopkins. Now, I've always liked Frederick March quite a bit, and um, I, I didn't really know this movie that well, but it came out in a Criterion Collection edition uh, about two years ago or so, I'd say, and it's been sitting on my shelf waiting to be watched ever since then. So it's it's kind of high on my list because I actually own the movie, and I just want to get around to watching it. Yeah, I, that's when I was doing this. I saw that one, and I've... I couldn't remember if I'd seen it or not. It seemed to ring some bells, but I didn't want to put it down because I couldn't remember for definite. Right, right, exactly. Okay, so my number eight is Son of Kong. Very nice. Which was directed by Ernest Shodzak. Sure, easy for you to say. Yeah, and it's a sequel to King Kong and was released nine months, just nine months after King Kong came out. It's a bit funnier. There's more action on the island, and it also features the filmmaker Carl Denham. There's the character from the first film as well, going off and getting up to all sorts of things. But it's, I suppose it's, uh, I remember seeing it as a kid. I'm really enjoying it, but it's it's sillier than King Kong. Right. And the uh, Son of Kong is a bit goofy and does some things, but there's some good fights. There's stop motion animation. I'm always a sucker for that. So it's, uh, it's that's where it's my number eight. Very good. All right, well, my number seven is I'm No Angel. And I don't actually know a whole lot about this film. All I know is it stars Mae West and Cary Grant, which seems like a bit of an odd pairing to me because Cary Grant was always so, like, upper crust and, and you know, Mae West was always so, like, sultry. And, you know, so I, yeah. I find the pairing of them very interesting. So I, I'd like to see that movie. My number seven is The Mayor of Hell. It's directed by Archie Mayo. It stars J- James Cagney, who was a gangster who ends up becoming deputy commissioner and takes over the running of the state reformatory because he fancies a nurse there. But it's that's 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 the basic plot. But he uh it's it's Jimmy Cagney being a gangster and it's in this reformatory full of other ne'er do wells and it's it's dark, it's there's violence, it's it's a bit sexy in places, it's just a good one of these films. It was also remade as well in nineteen thirty eight as Crime School with Humphrey Bogart. Very cool. My number six is The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, which was a film by Fritz Lang, who directed Metropolis, and it is a dark crime thriller, and I always find those interesting. I always like to see what Fritz Lang had to do. He was a very interesting director, and this is a pretty well-known film that I feel like I should have seen, but I haven't. Yeah, I've not seen that one either, but it does sound like a good one. So my number six is, we've already mentioned Mae West. It's another one of her films, She Done Him Wrong, Mm -hmm. and this one also stars Cary Grant. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I know. I'm not sure whether this one came out first or whether the one you mentioned was the first one, but this is the one I've seen. It's uh, Mae West as a nightclub singer who's been pursued by many men or suitors, however you want to describe them. And if he, that's the one where it features the line, why don't you come up sometime and see me? Right, right, right. But she's uh, Mae West. It's P-code, so they got away with all sorts of innuendo and skimpy clothing and things like that. But it's a, it's a good film. It's funny in places, good characters. So what have you got for your number five? All right, my number five is one that has already appeared on your list, and it is Son of Kong. Um, big fan of King Kong. I've never actually seen this particular sequel, and I would really like to. I love giant monster movies, and especially classic ones, so got to get around to seeing that. Yeah, I, th- I think the kids probably like watching it as well. Sure, sure. Okay. So my number five, it's a Japanese gangster film. It's silent Japanese gangster film hmm. uh, called Dragnet Girl. Directed by Yasuhiro Ozu, who did the uh, wonderful Tokyo Story. Right. Follows a gangster who meets a shop girl who sets him on a path of redemption, but he also has trouble with his uh, his own girlfriend and with the police. Uh, it's an Ozu film, so it's he's normally known for his static kind of shots, but this one features uh, great use of moving the camera. Some amazing shots. Just It's just wonderful to watch and also makes good use of sound, even though it's a silent film. Sure. I, I know Ozu is a very well-respected filmmaker and yeah. unfortunately not one I have a lot of exposure to yet, but one of these days. Worth checking out. I need, I've only seen a few of his films, but uh, this one was a good one. Very cool. All right. Well, my number four, we move into the films I've actually seen. Hooray. Yay. So my number four is Alice in Wonderland, the Disney classic. And um, I uh, I don't know that I would say it's one of my favorite Disney films, but obviously I'm a little limited in my 1933 picks. But I do think it's interesting in that the the – the upgrade in animation techniques between Snow White, which was just a few years before, and this, you know, they look like two different films. I think Snow White oh, yeah, looks yeah. a lot more dated, as much as I love Snow White, but it has a much more classic dated look to it, whereas Alice in Wonderland has a much more vibrant, modern feel to it. Um, so it's, you know, it's an interesting film. It's got some great visuals. And, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I, I've always loved classic Disney films. There's very few of them that I don't like. And so this one made my list. 
good stuff. Yeah, because it's. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a good film, but I was never. I've never been a fan of Alice in Wonderland in any of the the story itself or. It's yeah, it's, really, it's yeah. yeah, it's definitely not one of my favorites, but you yeah. know, like I said, yeah. I was I was a little limited. So uh, okay, um, my number four is Sons of the Desert, Laurel and Hardy film, which is a classic. Probably lots of people have seen it, except for your co-host, apparently. Oh, you've seen it? Oh, it's the one. Oh. I told you, I've only seen four films. You know the one? You know in the Flintstones where they're always the water yep. buffalo yep. things. It's it's sort of gotcha. that was a riff on this where they the part of this what do you call them fraternity society right, and yeah. those things. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to go away on this thing, but they don't want the wives to know. Gotcha. And it's just a classic Laurel and Hardy. It's a good one. Sure. Great. All right. Well, my number three then is Duck Soup, the Marx Brothers classic, uh, which is kind of an oddball film for them, in my opinion, because it has a lot to do with like politics and, you know, foreign countries and all this weird stuff, but it, which doesn't make it sound very funny, but it is. It's a great comedy classic. It's got the four brothers in it, Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Zeppo, and uh, it's just a good fun time. So a film that I enjoy. I always enjoy a little bit of Marx Brothers. Yeah, I, I do like the Marx Brothers, and that's why my number three is also Duck Soup. Oh, look at that. We had two matches yeah. today. I, have, and I also like the, always like the scene with the mirror when it's uh yes it's harpo harpo's doing uh yep harpo doing and Groucho. Groucho's reflection that is in the, uh, yeah. one of the most famous scenes from that movie where yeah, they're yeah. mirroring each other and it's it's fantastic yeah. just amazing brilliant physical comedy well this is interesting if it, it, we you know you and i always tend to differ a little bit but i could see maybe some similarities or even a match for our first two films let's see where it yeah goes. i think i'm thinking that so my number two is the invisible man starring claude it's Rains. a bingo there we go yeah and based on hg wells hg wells novel it's a it's a terrific yeah. story you know some some great special effects for the time and just you know a really cool film i mean really the first time we'd ever seen an invisible character on screen and uh it's you know i, I remember watching it as a kid and i loved it and i i think it still holds up as an adult yeah and it's same for me it's my number two and it's a james well directed film and it's all, i always like the fact uh they did the invisible bits when he's taken you know the bandages off mm-hmm. he had claude rains wearing black velvet and he filmed it in front of a black velvet screen right that's how they did it. It's just such an easy thing to do, but it's so effective. Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Just a really cool film for the time, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah. a great story. So, all right. Well, that's a match then. I have a feeling we may have our first match for number one this year. I think I think we might. So well. uh, let's see what we got. For number one, my number one film of the year, of course, is King Kong. Ah, uh, it's a bingo again, yes. All right. King so- Kong, that's the first one. Very good. Yeah. yeah, it's the first time we've matched up on our number one film yeah. for the year. Interesting. But I think you really can't get any better than King Kong. Honestly, the original King Kong is one of my favorite movies of all time. I have I've been fascinated by the character of King Kong since I was a kid and I first saw the Jeff uh Jeff Bridges version from the 70s which I loved at the time. Mm. And um you know, later on in life when I was a teenager, I think I saw the original King Kong and I just fell in love with it. I mean, it's it's technically brilliant for the time. And I know that watching it today, I'm I'm sure a lot of audiences who grew up on CGI special effects would probably laugh at the King Kong special effects, but for my money, no None of the King Kongs has ever had the pathos that that yeah. the original did, and even Andy Serkis's King Kong in, in the Peter Jackson version, which which is an amazing performance. But there's something about that original one that he's kind of creepy looking and kind of goofy looking. But man, there's something about it that really tugs at my heartstrings, and I just feel like that first movie is so economical. You know, it's not it's not three hours long like Peter Jackson's, and it's not kind of cheesy like some of the '70s one is. But it's just this perfect little yeah. you know science fiction film, and I just I love it. I love it so much, and it's just filled with iconic images, and the posters for it are great, and you know I I just can't get enough of the original King Kong. I, I agree with every word you said. You, you nailed it there. It's, it's thank you. It's a brilliant movie. Yeah, it it's, really is. It's one of the it's one of the classics. I mean, you if you read the plot, you'd be going, "What? Why is this?" But when you you finally see the original one, even after seeing the the remakes and things, but you see the original one, it, it's it. I think it still stands up. It's still there's something about it. It's just I think they just managed to capture lightning in a bottle and just get it all right that one time. Yeah, I agree. It's yeah. like you said, there's something about it that it really does hold up well, and I can watch it now and I enjoy it just as much as any movie made today with a hundred million dollar budget. Yeah. It's funny. I'm looking at all my Blu-rays. I don't actually own it. I need to make sure. I need to buy that. Oh yeah, I yeah. I do. That. that is one. And actually, the Blu-ray has the sort of famous deleted spider scene, which Peter Jackson oh, yeah, did yeah, yeah. Uh, resurrect for his his um for his version. But it is actually on there as a deleted scene, so it's pretty cool to see that. But yeah, King Kong, brilliant film, as I'm sure many 
of the listeners will agree. All right, well, great. So those are our top 10 films of 1933. If you've seen some, you have some different opinions or even the same opinions like Phil and I just did, feel free to drop us a line and let us know what you think of our picks. Phil, how do we do it compared to the box office? Okay, we got the box office of that, of 1933. There was nine and 10, it was a tie apparently. There mm. was uh, Design for Living, Oh, great. This one you mentioned. Yep. Uh, Little Women, which starred Catherine yeah. Hepburn, which I may, may have seen, but again, I couldn't remember for definite. I was the exact same way on yeah. that one. Uh, number eight was Hold Your Man, which starred Gene Harlow and Clark Gable. Mm-hmm. Seven was Dinner at Eight, which right. fe- features Marie, Marie Dressler, John Barrymore, Gene Harlow, Lionel Barrymore, and Billy Burke. Mm-hmm. Number six was State Fair, which starred Janet Gaynor. Number five was She Done Him Wrong, Mae West, which right. I had, I had from number six, yeah. Yep. Uh, number four was 42nd Street. Of course. Uh, number three was King Kong. Oh, number three only, huh? Yeah. Uh, number two was I'm No Angel, the other May West film. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, number one was Queen Christina, which featured Greta Garbo and John Gilbert. Wow, that's interesting. That's not even a film that I've I've even heard of. It's funny to think that a film that beat King Kong at the box office yeah. had so you know had such. I don't want to say it had no impact, but like compared to a lot of the other ones on the list, I haven't even heard of that. One. It must have just been one of those sort of of the time popular movies. Okay, well, I think that's going to mostly wrap things up for tonight. Phil, why don't you tell people how they can get a hold of us online? Yeah, you can find us on Twitter where we are at after underscore the ending. And we're also on facebook.com backslash after the ending podcast. And you can find us on iTunes, but we're also on soundcloud.com backslash after the ending podcast. And we're on Stitcher. That's right. And if you'd like to email us directly, you can send us an email at afterthending at verizon.net. That's V-E-R-I-Z-O-N.net. All right. So, Phil, we have some exciting movies to talk about next week. Why don't you fill everybody in on what we're going to be discussing in next week's episode? I would love to. We will be discussing... Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive, starring Ryan Gosling, being all quiet and moody. And also a little film by Steven Spielberg called E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Yeah, that's uh, that should be a fun one. You know, one of the biggest films of all time. I think it's about time we tackled a, you know, a really, really big blockbuster. Yes, and we will be also looking at the year of 1981. And there were some huge films in that year. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a very 80s-tastic episode next week, apparently. Mm. <laughs> mm. Well, I look forward to diving into it and sharing our our top 10. And if you guys listening would like to get your lists ready ahead of time, feel free to share them with us. We'd love to hear them. Uh, in the meantime, Phil, where can people track you down online? You can find me online at liveforfilms.com and all its associated social media channels where we talk all film news, reviews, interviews, cool movie-related art, some TV stuff, some comics, bits and pieces, whatever takes my fancy, basically. Um, what about you, Mike? Where can they find you? All right. Well, the best place to find me is at wordsoutloud.com, which is the hub for all of my creative endeavors, including this podcast. You can also find exclusive fiction there. And just for swinging over there, you can download some really cool free stuff, including an audiobook and a digital book. And you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Mike Spring Official. Please swing on by, give me a like, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy what I have to share. All right. Well, as always, we would very much like to thank you for listening. If you could swing by one of your favorite podcast apps and leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. Oh, definitely. Please leave a review. Let us know exactly what you think of us, good or bad. Be honest. We'll take it all. We'll take it all. All right. Well, until we meet again, I am Mike Spring. I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you after the ending. Yes, that's right. I don't know what we're going to do when we run out of new Mighty Morphin Mini 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 that's terrific. I hope that turns up in the podcast. Well, at least there's a, you know, a little bit of action. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> More than I can say for our show so far. Ah, <laughs> but I'm bummed. All right. Let's do that one again. No. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I, I hear the fish here is great, Phil. It's a bit off this season. <laughs> <laughs> Must be because all the birds. Anyway, okay. Try the veil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but okay. Singular so Mel- on that one, actually. Melanie Griffith. Yeah. Griffith. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lift. Right. <laughs> so, so we have Melanie Daniels. <laughs> <laughs>
He lives a pretty... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He lives a pretty... Uh, pretty something. We may never know if I can't get this line out. <laughs> when Nick invites Danny to watch the new Arnold Schwarzenegger film, the new Jack Slater... Well, yeah, I don't want to say that. Damn all this meta stuff. You'd think it would come easier <laughs> to me. Come on. <laughs> so, uh, so hang on. Uh, my nose itches in case you're wondering what I was doing just then. I know it probably sounded like I was <laughs> angrily eating a chicken wing or maybe fighting a badger. Change into werewolf. Yeah, something like that. Just itching my nose. Apparently I, yeah. I do that very emphatically. <laughs> oh, hold on. I need to find out who the prime minister was. That's the one thing. The you, don't one know, you don't know by heart? Who was the prime yeah. minister in 1933? Come on, Phil. I know I should do, but... Uh, Terrible. Who is it? Who the hell, say? You're no, you're no Brit. You spend okay. all your time picking out colors from China for castles. You don't know anything about British <laughs> <Yeah>. politics. <laughs> See, I can do callbacks too, you know. I say, sir, how very dare you? <laughs> Are you going to slap me across the face with your leather glove? Come on, Yank. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> okay, red coat. <laughs> My number six is the Testament of Doctor Mabuse. Mabuse, Mabuse. I think I don't yeah, know. I, I don't I'll know. Do it again. Okay, Doctor Caboose. <laughs> All right, so we have some really interesting movies to talk about next year. Uh, next week. Next year. What's happening? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're having a little hiatus, Phil. I yeah. forgot to tell you. <laughs> oh my god. I just, you know, you're too, you're too British for me, so I just need a little break. <laughs> I say, <laughs> let me put my cup of tea down. <laughs> More crumpets, please. <laughs> and other British stereotypes. Until next week, I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next, damn it. <laughs> I don't know what it is about our endings. Why are they so painful? Why? <laughs>